We are in Matthew chapter 27, and we left off at verse 55, where it says, And many women, it doesn't name many, but it says there were many women were there beholding the crucifixion, all the things that had taken place afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Now among which was Mary Magdalene, whom he had cast out seven demons and set free. There was Mary, the mother of James and Joses, James the Less and some feel this is Mary, the sister of Mary, the mother of our Lord. And I know we think that's strange, two Marys. Um, one of our folks years ago was going through Texas, and uh, they wanted to get married, and they ran into George Foreman, who heard they were getting married, and he invited them out to his ranch and performed a ceremony and catered the reception to everything. And uh, she said all his boys were named George. So uh, so these are two Marys here. And Mary, the mother of the Lord, and Mary, her sister, the mother of James and Josie. And then it's, it mentions the mother of Zebedee's children, Salome. And they are there watching. And it says in verse 57, when even was come. Now, this is no doubt the first evening, the time of the evening sacrifice, which was three in the afternoon. Christ had just died on the cross. The activities begin relative to that. And uh, there was another evening as it began to turn to dusk around six o'clock. Uh, but this is no doubt the first evening. Uh, when even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, also was one of Jesus' disciples, and he went to Pilate, and he begged for the body of Jesus. So, no doubt, shortly after three in the afternoon, there's been the earthquake. There's been three hours of darkness that's covered the world. Uh, there's been these incredible things that have taken place, the veil in the temple torn from top to bottom, no doubt Joseph of Arimathea knew about that. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And uh, he comes to Pilate. He tells us here he's one of Jesus' disciples to ask for the body. Because the two criminals on either side, they broke their legs so they couldn't breathe. Um, they would then be taken if nobody claimed them, and usually they didn't, and thrown into Gehenna, the valley that smoldered and the dogs would come and eat the body sometimes they would just rot and uh, Jesus as a malefactor the, the accusations they came up against him with no doubt none of his disciples or family would come to get the body and Joseph of Arimathea steps up to the plate having been a secret disciple up at that, that point in time and he no doubt has access to Pilate because of his wealth. And he goes in and he asks for the body of Jesus. And we have an incredible set of circumstances that take place. Uh, if you would turn with me to Mark, you don't have to, but if you would, if you have a book in your hand, yeah, you turn with me to Mark, page 73. 
chapter 15, verse 42 says, And now when even was come, Mark is telling us the same thing, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, so this is Friday afternoon, evening, Christ has died. Joseph of Arimathea, and Mark tells us he was an honorable counselor, and that he waited for the kingdom of God, and that he went boldly unto Pilate, and he craved, we're told in Matthew, begged for the body of Jesus. So we're told this man, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, We used to have in our lending library a tape when we used to have tapes you could watch at home, um, VCR, and it was on the Shroud of Turin. Now we kept it there, not because I was endorsing the Shroud of Turin, but because the historical documentation that went along with it was fascinating. There were a group of scientists and PhDs that filled in the background in their minds before they got permission to work on the shroud. One of them had read the entire Talmud, 22 volumes. Another one had gone through all the New Testament passages in Greek. Another one, you know, studied through all of these writings and church fathers and all of these things. And Dr. Paul Bromley said in regards to the Talmud that the Talmud had said there were only 14 honorable counselors in the history of the nation. So we're told in Luke's gospel, Joseph of Arimathea was a counselor. We're told specifically in Mark that he was an honorable counselor. So he was a very significant person in the history of the nation. And then Mark tells us that he's waiting for the kingdom of God, which is what we're kind of doing now, isn't it? He, he was doing it without watching the news. Uh, we have inspiration. He's waiting for the kingdom of God. That's a very interesting phrase. We're told that about Simeon and Anna. When Jesus comes in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph bring him 40 days to dedicate him as an infant, as a young boy. He encounters, they encounter in the temple precincts, Simeon, a prophet, and Anna, a prophetess, and it tells us of both of them, they were waiting for the kingdom of God. So we're told about this man, Joseph of Arimathea, he's waiting for the kingdom of God. We know that because he's carved out for himself a tomb in Jerusalem. He's Howard Hughes wealthy. He's Bill Gates wealthy. When you carve out a tomb then, it's not with pneumatic tools, you don't bring in machines and dynamite, you bring in a bunch of guys with hammers and chisels, and they chisel out of a a solid rock mountain, uh, a a tomb that you can walk into and and places to lay the bodies and so forth. So uh, he has this tomb in Jerusalem. Well, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb should have been in Arimathea, about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. That's where his father was buried. That's where his grandfather was buried. That's where his family was buried. And in that day, they would take you and they would lay you on one of the shelves in the tomb, uh, wrapped in linen. And within two years, they would come back and scrape your bones together and put them in an ossuary, a, a, a box. And then the spot was open again for the next member of the family that, uh, that passed. 
And uh, they'd have generations in one tomb like that. Here's Joseph of Arimathea that says this tomb he carved out, nobody's ever been buried there. He's made it for himself. And he considers the Messiah, who he doesn't know quite yet that it was Jesus. He considers the Messiah, according to the scripture, coming to the Mount of Olives, touching down, and then entering into Jerusalem. So Joseph of Arimathea wants to get up where Messiah is coming. He wants to be there when it happens. So he's waiting for the kingdom of God. He's made himself a tomb in Jerusalem there. And it says he goes in boldly to Pilate, and he craves the body, he asked. Pilate marveled if he were already dead, and calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been uh, any while dead, and when he knew that of the centurion, he gave the body. So Pilate is amazed that Jesus Christ is already dead. Um, Paul Bromley, Dr. Bromley, on that tape talking about the Shroud of Turin said when they investigated crucifixions, um, the shortest crucifixion they could find on record was 32 hours. Uh, the longest one they found was 13 days. There was a man that had lived, thir- he had lived 13 days on the cross. They were often eaten from the feet up by jackals. Uh, birds of prey would take out their eyes. It was a terrible way to die. And Jesus has been on the cross for six hours, and he's gone. No doubt his scourging was brutal beyond a normal scourging. But Pilate hears he's dead. He wants the body. So he sends a centurion to see if it's true. Now, the centurion would know the centurion that was there because it says they broke the legs of the two thieves. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. That's why they didn't break his legs. And Matthew says that it might fulfill what was written, not a bone of him shall be broken. And when you brought a lamb for sacrifice, you couldn't bring a lamb with a broken bone, and he was the lamb of God. So when the centurion comes back to Pilate and said, yeah, he's dead, it says, then there's no doubt. This guy doesn't make an error in that department, or his hide is up. So he tells Pilate, yeah, he's gone. And it says, when Pilate knew of that of the centurion, then he gave, notice, the body, the corpse, to Joseph. And and the word gave there is interesting. He gave it to him as a gift. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. In Second Peter, it says this, according as his um, divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness, has given to us as a gift. It's, it's passive, uh, it's, it's the, the perfect tense. He's given to us and we have those things. So here, the only other point, you, you, you find it, it says that Pilate gifted the body to Joseph of Arimathea, and he, now, verse 46, you guys with me? Okay, at least two or three of them, I'm happy. In verse 46, there's a structure in the Greek, it's called a polysyndeton, and it means that you inv- you insert ands, you know, specifically, and because there's a pattern of ands, chi's in the Greek, it's telling you that each phrase is significant. So verse 46 says, and he 
bought fine linen, that's Joseph of Arimathea. So the second ad, ad infers he again. And he took him down, Joseph of Arimathea, so it says, took him down. And he wrapped him in linen, and he laid him in a sepulcher, which was hewn out of rock. And he rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. Wealthy people would have a door that rolled, which was only the wealthy had that. Normally it was a boulder you pushed up. When they had a door that rolled in a trough, it was because people were wealthy. But it kept out wild animals. It kept out gray robbers from consuming the dead body and so forth or stealing. And then it says, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, were there. Luke tells it to us this way. If you'll turn to Luke chapter 23. I hear the rustling of pages. It's wonderful. Luke 23, verse 40, verse 50, I'm sorry, says, And behold, Luke says, think about this. Luke tells us when he wrote his gospel, he went... And he interviewed eyewitnesses and spoke to people that were involved. So Luke says, behold, consider this. There was a man named Joseph. Now, he doesn't say he was an honorable counselor. He says he was a counselor. And he does say this, Luke. He was a good man and just. Because Luke was owned by Theophilus, a senator, in, no, no doubt in the Roman world, and it was cheaper to have your own doctor than to pay for Blue Cross and Blue Shield in that day. So he, uh, he, he was owned by this man. So he knew when there was a man who, it says here, he was good and just. We know he's wealthy. Not all wealthy men are good and just. Turn on the news when you get home. Some wealthy men were worried about, and we wish they weren't worried about us. But he takes note of him and says, this is a rich man hewn his own tomb out of solid rock. And the interesting thing about him, he's a good man, and he's a just man, we're told by Luke. The same had not consented to the counsel, to the deed. He hadn't thrown down, literally he speaks of his vote, to the council, to the deed of them, the Sanhedrin, that wanted to take Christ's life. So he's a member. He hadn't thrown his vote in that direction. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited, Luke tells us, and he, it's the per, present perfect tense, he was continually waiting for the kingdom of God. That's a great way to live, by the way, and we should be doing that now, because if we ain't, we're going to get really discouraged with what's going on around us. He was continually waiting for the kingdom of God, because they were under the Roman heel. They were in all, you know, there's all kinds of things going on that would have discouraged them, like things that might discourage us. This man went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus... And Dr. Luke says it this way, and he, Pilate, uh, no, and he, Joseph Marathea, look what it says, he took it. doesn't say he took him down. Luke's a doctor. He took it down. He's talking about the corpse. He took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone wherein never a man was laid. And that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew on, 
and the women also that were there, they came and they watched. We have the same record there. John's Gospel gives us some interesting, chapter 19, if you'll turn there, uh, details that we don't have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now we're going to go back to Matthew where we are. I'm not lost. Kind of. Kind of not lost. In John 19, beginning at verse 38, it says, and after this, it described the earthquake and all the, the after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being, and John tells us, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. That's important. Because after this portion we're looking at tonight, no, no longer a secret disciple. But up to this point, he's a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. And he besought Pilate, begged Pilate again, that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. And he came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also, we only have this in John, Nicodemus, which had come to Jesus at night, you remember the story, and he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight, notice in verse 40, and they, and took they the body of Jesus, and they wound it in linen clothes with spices, very important, as the manner of the Jews is to bury, take note of that, now, in the place where he was crucified, there was also a garden. That's very important. When you go to Israel today, the garden tomb is right at the foot of Calvary. It's right there. And it says here, the garden was where he was crucified. And in the garden, a new sepulcher where never a man laid. And they laid Jesus there for, because of the Jews' pre preparation day, the sepulcher was nigh. At hand, So we get these pictures. Let's go back to Matthew, and hopefully it'll fill some things out for us here. Matthew says, And when even was come, there came a rich man, we're told, of Arimathea, named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. And we're told in John that he was Jesus' disciple secretly for fear of the Jews. He hadn't spoken up that we know of, but he had refused to cast his vote to have Jesus crucified. So he's a rich man from Arimathea, Joseph. We, we know of him as we read through. He's mentioned all four Gospels. Nicodemus is only mentioned in John's Gospel. And he went to Pilate, and again, he begged for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered to him. Matthew says, and when, when Joseph had taken the body. Now we're told in John's Gospel that it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus that took the body. And that when Nicodemus came, Joseph of Arimathea brought the linen cloth with him. And Nicodemus brought with him about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe. By the way, people who know the culture, that's a burial fit for a king. And of course it was. 
And uh, both of them are wealthy. Uh, Nicodemus, the Talmud tells us his name is Nicodemus Ben-Gurion, the son of Gurion. They say he's the brother of Josephus, the historian. He's the third wealthiest man in Jerusalem, Nicodemus. Um, History tells us his daughter had the most opulent wedding that Jerusalem had ever seen. And within 30 years, she was seen in a barn scraping barley off the floor for food. And history tells us it's because Nicodemus joined himself to the Christians and was stripped of his position and all of his wealth and everything for the sake of Christ. Nicodemus, in John's Gospel, we remember he came to Jesus at night. Master, we know you're sent from God. You couldn't do the miracles. That's where we learn that we need to be born again in that conversation. It says Nicodemus spoke to the Sanhedrin when they were talking about putting Jesus to death. And he said, you know, it's not lawful for us. Don't we have to bring the... And they said, what are you? One of his disciples too, John chapter 7. And he said, you know, and besides that, is there any prophet that comes from Galilee? You know, there, there is... Capernaum, Kafir, Nahum, the village of Nahum, one of their prophets, a dumb question to ask. But, uh, you know, so we hear from Nicodemus then, and then we have Nicodemus showing up here with Joseph. They must have talked. They had to have a conversation. And Joseph must have said, look, I'm going to go to Pilate. He knows me. He knows our family's wealth. I'm going to ask him. I'm going to beg him if, if he can give the body of Yeshua to me. Nicodemus must have said, where well, I'm going to go, I'll, I'll get some, some spices. We'll, we'll, we'll prepare things for the burial. Joseph, you know, you're giving up your tomb that you've never laid. Nobody's ever been in it. You made it for yourself. You're giving it for him. I can do this. I'll provide the spices. They came back. One of them evidently brought a ladder or a stool. One of them evidently brought a pry, a pry, a pry bar. Uh, And they came back to the cross, these two old men, wealthy old men. I heard Damien Kyle once say, this is not the job of wealthy old men, taking a dead body off the cross. And I started to look at that. I was intrigued by that and started to look in. And uh, it it says here that, that he was buried according to the manner of the Jews. Um, Some of the commentaries, D.A. Carson, others will say, at this point, they just, as I read, they just said the washing took place. That wasn't good enough for me. What, What do you mean the washing took place? We read in the book of Acts, it says, Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in the upper chamber. And then, of course, Peter comes and prays, and she's raised from the dead. So we have this interesting picture. It finds some of its tradition in Ezekiel chapter 16, 
where Ezekiel is chastising the nation and says there, uh, and say, Thus saith the Lord to Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, thy mother was a Hittite, and as for thy nativity, in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to be supple. Uh, thou wast not um, salted or swaddled at all. Then the Lord says, but then I passed by and I saw you. I loved you. I spread my skirt over you. I enter into a covenant with you. Then washed I thee with water, yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee and anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee and so forth. In Ecclesiastes it says this, uh, Solomon says of, of, the, of the man lives and dies, he says, As he came forth of his mother's womb naked shall he return to go as he came and shall take nothing of his labor and carry it off with him and so forth. So this tradition had developed by this point in time. Uh, Gamaliel, which is, you know, one of the most famous teachers in Israel, Gamaliel, is friends with Nicodemus. We know in John chapter 3, when Jesus is explaining the new birth, he says to Nicodemus, are you... The definite article. Are you the master in Israel and you don't understand these things? The idea is, are you the teacher? In, in seminary training in Jerusalem, you want to study theology, there was nobody like Nicodemus. He was head and shoulders above all. He was the master theologically in Israel. And Gamaliel was famous. Paul studied with Gamaliel. And they were friends. They knew each other. And we'll talk about that as we move on. Uh, I, I think, you know, we're told that when Nicodemus owned Christ here, because remember John chapter 9, when the blind man is healed, it says, by that time, the religious leader was saying, leadership was saying, anybody that has anything to do with Jesus is going to be excommunicated. And when you were excommunicated in Israel, you cut off from your, your family, you were cut off from your wealth, you were cut off from your employment, you were cut off from anything. And because Nicodemus then was cut off, we're told that Gamaliel had brought him into his home where he lived out the rest of his days. I think that's why in the book of Acts, when the, this religious community again it wants to kill the disciples, Gamaliel says, look, you guys, if this is all baloney, you don't have to worry about it. It's going to come to naught. But if in fact this is true, you might be found to be fighting against God. Because he had gotten an earful, no doubt, from Nicodemus. Gamaliel at this time, when the Jews were buried, the rich Jews were buried in their jewels and their opulent clothing and so forth. And Gamaliel said, you know, it's not right. It says here, as we came, that's the way we're going to go. We got here naked. We're leaving naked. You know, we should get washed. Everybody got washed when they came. We just get washed when we go. So they washed the body. So Gamaliel, while Christ was a young man before he came to public ministry, he made an edict that all the religious Jews, all the Jews, when they got buried in Jerusalem, should be buried in the linen cloth. 
instead of wealthy people being buried in opulent clothes and jewelry, making poor people feel bad. We're all the same when we get here. The verse said we come naked, we leave naked. So Gamaliel made the edict, and by the time Christ dies, everybody's being wrapped in the tachrachim, it was called. And it was about 14 foot long, about 4 foot wide. They would take the body and they would put the head about 7 foot in. Then they would take the, the, the shroud, pull it over the body down to the feet, and then tuck it around the feet. The body was tied at the feet then, tied at the knees. The hands were tied to the side, and the jaw was tied shut. The body was not wrapped like a mummy. That's Egypt. The body was not disemboweled and then, you know, embalmed. That's Egypt. None of that happened. The Jews would get them into the, the grave the same day. What, one of the things that stirred my interest, one of our Jewish ladies here said, my father, who came from Israel, moved back to Israel. He had cancer and he was dying and he wanted to be buried over there with his family. And the doctors called me from Israel and said, you better get over. He's only got a few days. So she said, I went over. And she said, then he died, and she said, I was there, and they took him into this room to wash him. And the group that washes him is called the Hevra Kadash. They still have it in Orthodox Judaism today. The Hevra Kadash, those who wash the body. And she said, because it was my dad, and I'm a woman, I sat outside, but I listened to them washing my father saying, Mr. Cohen, we're going to do this now. Mr. Cohen, we're going to roll you over now. We're going to wash you back. Mr. Cohen, we're going to roll you back. We're going to wash your face. And then at the end, they stand the body up, and they pour a bucket of water over the head, lukewarm water. They wash the whole body. And she told me she was there for the whole thing. And I'm thinking, that is just so. So I look up the Hever Kadash. I look up the Tahora. That's the washing. It was practiced then. It's practiced now. They would wash the body, then they would wrap it in the tachrachim, and then they would put it in the tomb. So the part of the story here that's so interesting is you have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come together. No more secret disciples. And they're doing everything they're doing for a corpse. Then another next chapter. They just said, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And their pipe spun around their mouth. They popped open a can of spinach, and they stepped into the scene. But, you know, they just, I, and I'm sure they felt terrible that they hadn't done anything sooner because they saw this, the whole earth turn black. The, the, the Jerusalem, there was a, a quake the morning. It must have woke, you know, that the startled them. They knew that in the temple, because they knew the priest, that the veil was torn. Priests come running out of there. Book of Acts tells many of them came to the faith. So these guys are shaken by, they must have looked at each other. They said, this must the Messiah. The centurion saying this, why didn't we do something sooner? Why didn't we speak up? Why don't we try to protect them? So they have this then feeling, we've got to do something. We've got to take care of the body. And they're willing to lose everything, friends, money, career, everything, for the sake of a dead Jesus. You and I have a live Jesus. He's risen, he's alive, and he's coming again soon. You know? And his kingdom, are we living always expecting the kingdom of God. I look at these two guys, because they get there to the scene, these two old codgers, you know, and uh, one tradition says that one put the, uh, the uh, kind of a ladder on the front half of the cross, the other on the back, 
and they got up that, that Joseph had brought extra linen and they tied his arms to the cross so they could get behind and bang the nails through and get them out with a pry bar. And then you're, you know, you're up there and here's this body, crown of thorns, bloody. You untie the one arm and it's slumping over your shoulder. You know what it's like picking up a kid that's asleep. This is dead weight. You know, take the spike out of the feet. And these two guys trying to, with some dignity, get this body down from the cross. And by the time they do that, they're covered with blood. They've disqualified themselves from celebrating the Passover. They're defiled. Very interesting. There are two sites in Jerusalem. One is the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's some things that endorse that. I'm, I'm not particularly impressed with it. But they do have the stone of washing there. But the stone is, is a stone that only comes from Italy. That's the stone of the washing there. But then here, there is Gordon's Calvary, Gordon's tomb also, which is without the gate, which is what it says. Uh, Gordon's tomb is at the top of Mount Moriah, where Abraham went and offered Isaac. Gordon's tomb is on the north of the city, and the burnt offerings were offered to the north. Um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre inside the city, um, and it was east of the Temple Mount and all those places, so which would mean the wind coming off the Mediterranean would blow the stink of a cemetery in a graveyard over the temple. That, that didn't happen. So there, there's this remarkable place you can go, and these two old guys get the body, and then they have to wash it. The, the Midrash said that you could infringe on the Sabbath to get the body washed. The Talmud said that sometimes they washed the body with water mingled with a myrtle because that has a sweet smell and that they would even comb the hair. So imagine these two old guys. They get them down. They lay them somewhere flat with dignity. And they have to pull the crown of thorns off of his head. They have to get the thorns that broke off and get them out from under his skin. They begin to wash him down. You know, when you get a little kid that gets a brush burn, gets a cut, when you wipe it off, it makes the, the borders of that wound very clear. You imagine them washing this body, his hands, the holes, his face beaten beyond human recognition, the beard pulled out, his legs, the holes in his feet, and then to roll him over and begin to wash his back where the scourging took place, and down to the bones. Just You can imagine the scene of these two old guys washing this body, taking care of it. They laid it on the takrakim, and they folded it over him. They tied his ankles together. They tied his knees together, his hands together, no doubt they stuffed the aloe and the myrrh into the folds and into the creases. Then they put the one last band around his head, holding his jaws shut. We don't know for sure whether they put coins on his eyes, but we are sure they closed his eyes before they wrapped him. And then they take him and they put him in the tomb. And they roll the door huge stone, ton and a half at least. I've been there and seen the trough in front of the door. 
and they leave. Silent. Heads down, bloody, defiled, broken. They leave. We know that uh, these guys came to the faith. Uh, on the Roman calendar or Christian calendar, August 3rd is the day of St. Nicodemus of Kafir Gamala. St. Nicodemus of the House of Gamaliel, celebrated on the 3rd on the Christian calendar. On March 17th, long before St. Patty's Day, you have the day of St. Joseph of Arimathea. And the remarkable tradition that goes with that is that Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, in 60 AD, when he was in Europe, they say he asked Joseph of Arimathea to go to Britain. And he was the first one to bring the gospel to Britain And he came to the area of Glastonbury in Somersetshire. And he built an altar out of thorns there. That was the first time the gospel was preached. You go to England today and go visit that. The Brits say, he's not Joseph of Arimathea. You're talking about Joseph of Glastonbury. He brought the gospel to our island. And I look at him and I think, you know, what, what do they have to say to us, these two guys? I think they would challenge us about being secret disciples. You just think of them. What was it like that morning? We'll go there next week, the resurrection. You know, there's an earthquake and all of Jerusalem rumbles. They must have sat up in bed and said, ruh-roh, you know, on Sunday morning. They hear then from some of the disciples, he's risen. He's not there. They must have got there later in the day. What was it like for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to walk into that tomb and to see that linen shroud laying flat with the part that was wrapped around his head folded up by itself. They would understand right away. Nobody, no, this wasn't a grave robber. Nobody, no, this is, he's gone. They must have understood it. What was it like Paul tells us, you know, remarkably in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, He says, I have delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. And then he tells us after his resurrection, he's seen all of these people at one point of 500 people together. But there he says, you know, that he was buried according to the scripture as well. And then he says, but after the resurrection in the one place, you know, he was seen of his brother James, seen of the the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he was seen of me. But he said at one point there were 500 witnesses. You know, you can imagine. Tell me about that crowd. 500 that gathered to him and saw him risen. I guarantee you there was a widow from Nain there and her son. I guarantee you there was a little girl and her father Jairus that were there. I guarantee you Mary, Martha, and Laz were there. 
blind Bartimaeus was there. There were lepers there. The demoniac from the Gadarenes was there. Think of the crowd who was in it, his disciples, the woman whose blood flow was stopped, Peter's mother-in-law. Somewhere in that crowd, there were two old guys standing together. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And what was it like for them to look at the body they had washed and put in the tomb and to see it animated, to see the mouth they had tied shut speaking life, to see the eyes they had closed open? What was it like for those two guys, you know? Did Jesus look over at them and smile at any point? Thanks, guys. Took care of me. I finally, when all the evil hands were done with me, I was thankful for your hands taking care of the, the spacesuit until I could get it up. You know. You know. I think when we get to heaven, they've been there two thousand years now. These codgers. In the crowd, you're going to look, and somewhere two old guys are going to be standing together looking at the lamb with marks of slaughter, knowing that nobody knows in their heart what they have in their heart, looking at those eternal wounds, the only thing in heaven man made, the wounds on the Savior, you know. And we're going to get to meet them. We're going to get to talk to them soon. Amazing, amazing. Remarkable picture. Remarkable things come together. Read a little bit of the history and look, you know. And I think these guys definitely have something to say to us. They had been secret disciples. They came out into the open. They lost their status. They lost their finances. They lost their friends. They lost their religious standing. They lost their place in schools that they were in. They lost everything. And when they initially did it, it was for a dead Jesus. You and I get to do it for a living Jesus. And we're going to do hard things. Or compromise. We're going to take some tough stands before this is over. For a living Jesus. For a living Jesus. Where our hope is and our future. So Matthew tells us that he laid him in this new tomb that he had hewn in stone, and he rolled a stone to the door of the sepulcher. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now, verses 62 to 66 are only in Matthew. They're nowhere else. It kind of gives us an inside rundown on what happened between the religious leaders, the soldiers, and Pilate. Matthew had an in because he had been a tax collector for a long time. When he collected taxes, a Roman soldier stood behind him with a spear and with a sword, and all the authority of Rome was behind him when he, when he collected taxes. So he's going to tell us what happened to the soldiers at the tomb. None of the other gospel writers do that. 
Matthew had that inside line, and the Lord wanted us to understand that. So we have this interesting now section, verse 22, and it says this, Now, the next day that followed the day of preparation, so we're on Saturday, the Sabbath day now, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together to Pilate, breaking the Sabbath, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, that after three days I will rise again. The disciples don't remember it. These guys are remembering it. You know, they knew because when when they were trying to drum up charges against Jesus, they said he said he's going to destroy the temple and raise it again in three days. And it says that's not what he said. He said to them, "You destroy this temple." Speaking of his body, I'll rise. But they knew he had said those things. They knew right before they crucified him that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. The whole area knew about it. So they are afraid. They are afraid after the darkness, after those things that had taken place, after hearing from priests that ran out of the temple when the veil was torn, they're afraid. That was the day before. So they come to Pilate, calling him sir. They're buttering him up. You remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, they're asking for official Roman sanction, a command from Pilate, the governor. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure. Sure. Be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, so that the last error then becomes worse than the first error. Which was what? Following him or believing what he said? So that the last error becomes worse than the first. Pilate is not happy with the Jews. He tried to wash his hands of this whole thing. He was warned by his wife in a dream not to have anything to do with him. And they pushed him and pushed him and pushed him. He didn't want to participate in the crucifixion. So Pilate then says to them in verse 65, he says to them, You have your watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. You know, all right. Yeah, you have your guard. Go on. Uh, let's see you uh, make it as sure as you possibly can. I don't want to hear about it anymore, you know. I get to send aside a, 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 a quaternium to uh, a custodia to, to guard a dead man. You got it. Go. And the watch here, that's the word in the Greek. It's custodia. Uh, we know that these are Romans because further on in chapter 28, it says they come back and tell the priest what happened. And the priest said, listen, this is the story you're going to make up. They give the money and said, if you guys get in trouble, we'll go to the governor and settle it. So these are federal employees. These are Roman soldiers. The custodia, we get custodian from that. Uh, we get certain words in our English that mean to care for, to look over, to watch over. The custodia was a special group. It was normally 16 men. Our Delta, DevGru, SEALs, our special forces today still read through some of their practices and the things that they did. These guys were studs. Each one of them 
could, carried a, a, a sling, which was their primary weapon, and they could hit a man at 75 feet on the command of an officer in the forehead, in the throat, in the chest. Each one of them had a Roman short sword, double-edged. Each one of them had a round shield with four javelins inside, and they were accurate with all those things. And 16 of them would be guarding during the night. If one of them fell asleep and a commanding officer came, he killed all 16 of them. That's why Jesus says in in the book of Revelation to keep your garments. Stay awake, keep your garments. Because if you were in that outfit and when you found one of your guys asleep, they would take from the fire, uh, they would take some of the fire, come over and they set those little skirts they wore. Said, set your skirt on fire. And that's a rude awakening, trust me, uh, when that happens. So this guard's there. Nobody's going to get there. The tomb is sealed, which means they put rope across it, and they had placed a Roman seal on it. All the authority of Rome was behind that now, and the custodia, the guard, was there guarding that. Ain't no disciples came there and stole the body away. The priests say, hey, you, you know, you tell him that you fell asleep and his disciples came and stole the body. Well, if you're asleep, how do you know who took the body? And, and if you're, you're asleep, you're going to get killed. God wants us to know that he gave testimony to Rome as well. It wasn't just the Jews that heard he was risen. It was the Romans. And in the middle of the Romans, the most respected, you know, warriors experienced this, the angel coming and rolling back the stone. We only know that from Matthew. So this particular Roman guard called the custodia gets put on the practice. Somewhere I found a book um, written about 325 A.D. by a Roman officer who rehearsed the history of the Roman from the Republic into um, the Roman Empire. And uh, really interesting. He said, he said in the early days, if you wanted to serve in the military, you had to be a landowner. You had to have a stake in the game. You had to be protecting your home and your wife and your kids. You could not be in the Roman army unless you were a Roman citizen and you owned land. And he said in those days, he said, we would put 1,000 against 10,000 of anybody else. He said our soldiers would walk through the desert with 50-pound packs for miles. And when it changes then from the Roman Republic, and by the way, the Roman Republic, the first 280 years, they said there was never a single divorce. 280 years. By the time the Roman Empire evolves, you you have concubines, you have harlots, you have all of this, mistresses. Uh, But he said what happened is the Roman Empire started to come. Then all of these people who were foreigners who wanted Roman citizenship started to come in, and they were serving just to get what they wanted out of it. Uh, slaves could serve and be freed. And uh, this officer said it, the, the whole thing lost. He said, we couldn't get anybody to carry a 50-pound sack for miles anymore. They didn't have a stake in the game. They weren't protecting their own property, their own wife and their own kids. You know, all these foreigners came in. They were just putting in their time to get their paper. But this particular part of the Roman uh, army uh, was the most disciplined and feared group. They said these 16 men could get in a circle, all 16 of them, 
they stood far enough apart they could sling their slings and nobody get near, and they could do it in groups of four as well. It's just incredible to read the discipline and so forth. That was there. That's who's at the tomb. Not a bunch of, you know, night watchmen. This is the custodia. The Roman guard is there at the tomb. And God wanted, the Father wanted them there. Probably loved some of them. We're going to probably meet some of them pretty soon. And if they say to you, I was one of the custodia, you'll know. Everybody else is not going to know. You'll know who they were. So only Matthew tells us that. These guys get posted at the tomb. Pilate says, all right, you got it. You got your watch. Take it. And I love this. Make it. I think Matthew liked writing it. Make it as sure as you can. So they went. They made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone that rolled away you know, several tons and setting a watch. Roman history tells us if you broke a Roman seal and they found you, they would crucify you upside down. If you broke a Roman seal and they couldn't capture you and they know what village you were from, they came to your village and crucified every man, woman, and child. Nobody broke a Roman seal. Nobody broke a Roman seal. Jesus broke a Roman seal. No, the angel broke the seal, but that wasn't to let Jesus out. That was to let us in so we could see he was already gone. That's, uh, if the Lord tarries, that's next week's study. But, uh, you know, the just incredible things here. And this, you know, I can't go through this process of the death and then the entombing of Jesus. I can't do it without thinking of Nick and Joe, you know. These two guys, they, they played this part that... You kind of put the all four Gospels together, and then you study and see some of the things that said. I was in Encyclopedia Judaica this afternoon, and I have some other things, just some great sources. Uh, people say, where do you get that? And I always say, a book. <laughs> you couldn't find it online, could you? It's this great old thing with pages. and. Uh, if you don't know Jesus tonight, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray with you. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. I've been there many times. It's the only reason we go. Muhammad's in his tomb, and Zoroaster's in his tomb, Confucius in his tomb, Grant's in his tomb, and Elvis is in his tomb. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. We don't go there to see where there was a martyr. We go to see the empty tomb of our Lord and Savior, because he's coming again. If you don't know him, come up and pray with us at the end of uh, the evening. We'd love to have that conversation with you and pray with you and give you a Bible and see you come to know him personally. He's risen. He's alive. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Read ahead. Look, one chapter left. It's not a big deal, right? And it's a short chapter. So read ahead. Father, we thank you for these things as we look at them. And Lord, it's what beauty and what power, what human emotion, what, Lord, what these men and women must have experienced, these soldiers, Lord. How incredible, Lord. We, we can't hardly imagine what it was like for Joe and Nick to, to see you risen, Lord. I wonder, Lord, did you give them a nod? <laughs> did you let them know they did a good job? Did you pat them on the shoulder when you walked by? Thanks, boys. How amazing, Lord. How amazing. And we think, Lord Jesus, that soon we're going to get to sit 
and to look into your face, Lord. Soon we'll be gathered to you, Lord. Help us not to be secret disciples, Lord, in this world. Help us, Lord, to choose you over all the uncertainties that could come our way, Lord. Let these two old men speak to us clearly, Lord, through your word, through the unction of your spirit. And Lord, we, we, we pray, come quickly, Lord. We look forward to your kingdom and your coming, the end of the madness and of the pain and of the hatred and of the war. And Lord, we think, what an incredible future, Lord, you've set before us. Our hearts are there, Lord. You, you always keep your word. You always keep your word. You told Nicodemus that as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, you had to be lifted up. I'm sure he thought of it. Lord, you said in Isaiah, there would be the rich in your death. I'm sure they read it and it blew their minds. I'm sure they would tell us that they believed in a literal fulfillment of prophecy. And Lord, we're surrounded with prophecy. Let your word speak to us in the day that we live in, Lord. Do it in the power of your spirit. Renew us, strengthen us, Lord. Fill us afresh. Lord, we pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.